And now hear God's holy word from Ephesians chapter 3, continuing our study in Paul's letter to the Christians in Ephesus. Hear now God's holy word. For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you, how that by revelation he made known to me the mystery, as I have briefly written already, by which... When you read, you may understand my knowledge in the mystery of Christ, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men, as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets, that the Gentiles should be fellow heirs of the same body and partakers of his promise in Christ through the gospel, of which I became a minister according to the gift of the grace of God given to me by the effective working of his power." And then we'll let the apostle finish the sentence he started by skipping to verse 14. For this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thus far, the reading of God's word. Let us pray together. Father, we humble ourselves before your word today. We don't put ourselves over it. We put ourselves under it to hear, to be taught, to be tutored, to be led into truth. So by your Holy Spirit, strengthen us. Open up our ears and our eyes to see these mysteries that Paul speaks of so that we may grasp them and get our arms around them and meditate on them and internalize them so that we may be changed, so that our families may be changed, our workplaces and our streets and our neighborhoods, our city, our state and our nation and the world might be changed by your Holy Spirit as we conform to your will. Father, do this work and begin this work in us today. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen. Do any of y'all remember the Bible Code? It was a book that came out about 20 years ago. The author was Michael Drosnin, and it was this huge sensation back in about 98, 99. I remember even buying a copy of the book. And Drosnin in this book claimed to have found secret messages hidden in the text of the Bible, particularly the Hebrew text of the of the Old Testament. By squeezing the text together, he could look at it like a crossword puzzle and he could count up letters this way or diagonally and find hidden messages in the text of the Bible. So for example, if you look at every 14th letter of the book of Habakkuk, there's some you know, modern day ruler's name found in there or, or something. Or if you take every 50th letter of the book of Genesis, if you start with the first T, in the book of Genesis, and then you take every 50th letter, it spells Torah. Or if you do the same thing with Exodus, it it spells Torah. Uh, The author claimed that if you used his formula, you could find a prophecy about the assassination of Israeli Prime Minister Yitzhak Rabin. Uh, and, And he you know, was able to find letters and he strung them out by using a mathematical formula. He found this prophecy about the about the assassination of Rabin the tragedy was it was two years later that he found out about it. He died. Uh, Rabin was killed two years before the publication of the book. If only he had worked out the formula sooner, he might have uh, saved Yitzhak Rabin's life. Well, that, that book was wildly popular for a while. It captured people's imagination with the possibility that there may be some extra hidden secret meaning in the text of the Bible, some, some hidden prophecy that we could access if we just had the right mathematical formula. But then... It was all quickly debunked by mathematicians and statisticians 
who demonstrate that any sufficiently large uh, text will have patterns that spell things out if you go looking for them. You see, these things only work in reverse. You can only go looking for things uh, after the fact. And so you can find similar prophecies and hidden sentences if you run the same procedure on a Hebrew translation of War and Peace. You can find prophecies in there. One Australian computer scientist, he found a prophecy about the assassination of Yitzhak Rabin in Moby Dick, a Hebrew translation of Moby Dick, along with letter combinations that predicted the assassinations of Gandhi and Martin Luther King Jr. Again, it only works in reverse. It only works after the fact and you go looking for it. What's befuddling about this sort of thing and why books like this sell and it seems like every five or six years there's some other little thing that that captures people's imagination but but what's befuddling about this is that these things and these guys can find an audience among a christian populace that doesn't know what the bible says on a plain reading people who don't know what habakkuk says on an ordinary reading are immensely uh, enraptured and encaps encaptured by the idea that there may be something every 14th letter of Habakkuk might tell you. Uh, is this how God works? Does he hide information from us and make us figure out complicated formulas to know what he's saying? Or can we trust that he's revealed to us everything plainly in his word? And now our job is to read it to hear it, to understand it, to internalize it, to meditate on it, and to apply it. But that he said everything that, that he intends to say, and it's all very clear, and it's all very accessible. Um, so it seems like we'd want to master the plain reading of the Bible before we get into any crazy coded reading. And yet folks are, are drawn to this sensationalism, to the idea that there are maybe things that God is withholding from us. They're more interested in the prospect of secret knowledge than in the straightforward, ordinary proclamation of the gospel. And this is a very, very old inclination. You know, the first time something like this ever happens is in the garden. It started in the garden when the serpent tempts Eve with the prospect that God is cruelly withholding vital information from her. That's how, that's how he tempts her. And ever since then, cults and mystery religions have always claimed to hold the hidden secrets of the universe. Outsiders to the cult are not able to, to understand or, or obtain the hidden knowledge. And, and those on the inside know arcane rituals and formulas and strange incantations that, that you can practice to manipulate the creation to giving up its secret knowledge. And then once you have the secret knowledge, you must promise not to share it. It has to be kept a secret. Now, having said all this, and this propensity to go looking for hidden meanings and, and, and secrets. Uh, the word mystery does appear in the Bible. The Greek word mysterion is used 27 times in the New Testament. 20 times that word is used by Paul, and it's used more in his letter to Ephesus than it's used in any other part of his writing. Paul uses the word mysterious or, or mystery a lot. But when the scriptures use this word, this word mystery, it's not speaking of some hidden knowledge that only a few people, just a handful of people in the know have access to, secrets they must guard with their lives. That's not, that's not how the Bible uses the word mystery. The mysteries of the Bible are not like the you know, a word puzzle on the back of the cereal box where you find the code and you fill in the blanks and you find out, oh yeah, uh, frosted flakes really are great. Oh, that's good information to have. That's, that's not how you access 
these mysteries that the Bible speaks of. In particular, the mysteries that Paul have, has written about in this letter to the Ephesians are the mysterious way that God has brought together heaven and earth in Jesus. The mysterious way that God has brought together man and man in the church, in one new humanity, has brought together Jew and Gentile. The mysterious way that he has purposed in himself to bring together all humanity in the church and then join the church to Jesus as a bride and a bridegroom. These are the truths that have been hidden in God in ages past, but no amount of human ingenuity, no ritual, no, no complicated incantation could have gotten that information before God chose to reveal it. Now, Paul says, God has revealed these things to the apostles and the prophets by his spirit. And now that these mysteries are revealed, they're the possession of everybody. They belong to everyone. They're open and, and they're simple to understand. They're not, they're not reserved for an intellectual minority. In fact, Paul is going to say in our reading today, this mystery is going to be shared in and known by everyone. It's the possession, it's the inheritance of the entire church. In the Christian faith, there are no secret teachings. There are no esoteric secrets that are reserved for an elite class of super spiritual people. All of the gospel is for all of the people of God. All of Jesus is for everyone. There are not some of us who have the spirit and some of us who don't. We are all filled with God's Holy Spirit, and we're all brought into union with Jesus, and we all have the whole Word of God, and, and so we don't, we don't set up barriers to understanding. We don't preach it in a different language. We don't read it in a different language. It's read in English and heard in English so that we can all hear it and understand it and receive it. And so this is what Ephesians has been about so far, the revealing of things that were not understood before Jesus. At the beginning of his letter, Paul unveils the revelation of how Jesus has brought reconciliation between God and man, heaven and earth. And then last week in chapter 2, we witnessed him shift the discussion to how God has brought together Jew and Gentile. Now he pauses to rejoice in this and he praises God for it. So much of chapter 3 is a prayer. It's a, it's a doxology that praises God for the way that he's worked. He starts in verse 1, and we're just going to walk through this uh, briskly. He starts in verse 1, and he cuts himself off. He says, For this reason I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles, comma, or dash, there's a, probably a big M dash in your text there, if indeed you have heard of the dispensation of the grace of God which was given to me for you. And he doesn't finish his sentence that he starts for this reason. He doesn't finish that sentence until verse 14 where he says, For this reason I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. And so in between verse 1 and verse 14, where he picks back up on the thought he started way back in verse 1, in between there, he explains just what he is thankful for, just what he is bowing his knee for. He identifies himself at the beginning as the prisoner of Jesus for the Gentiles. I'm the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. Or I'm a prisoner on account of the Gentiles. Now, as Paul writes this, he's under house arrest in Rome. He's awaiting his appointment to testify before Caesar on charges that were levied against him back in Jerusalem. Remember what got him arrested, what set all of this in motion was a false accusation way back in Jerusalem where he was accused of bringing a man, a Gentile, into the holy courts of the temple. He was 
accused to bring a Gentile who, by the way, was an Ephesian named Trophimus. So, so this merging of Jew and Gentile is all very near and dear to the Ephesian heart. These Gentiles that Paul is writing to, they know of an example, a personal example of a man who was, who, who was turned away, even if by accusation he was turned away. And this is what Paul got arrested for. He was, he was arrested. This is what drove the Jews crazy, that, that he, was, he was, this is in their words back in Acts 21, they said, he's preaching against our people against our law and against this place, the temple. See, they weren't ready to bring down the walls that the cross had obliterated. And so Paul's present affliction had come about on account of his ministry to Gentiles. But it was all worth it to him, absolutely worth it, because this unification of humanity in Jesus was, for Paul, at the heart of the gospel. And you can see what a pressing issue it is. As we read last week, as we, as we saw in chapter 2 last week, this enmity, this hostility has been taken away. The hostility between Jew and Gentile has been nailed to the cross. It's been put to death, as he says in Colossians. This was the message that burned in Paul's bones. Now he says, this revelation has been made known to me so that when you read it, you may know the mystery of Christ. Again, this is not secret knowledge. This is open for everyone now. He says in verse 5, which in other ages was not made known to the sons of men as it has now been revealed by the Spirit to his holy apostles and prophets. Now, we saw last week there are many, there are multiple Old Testament references to God's intention to bless the Gentile nations. There's so many references of the bringing in of the Gentiles. So, that was made known, as we saw last week. None of this should have been a total surprise, but it wasn't fully revealed the way that it had been in Jesus. So he says, it wasn't made known as it has now been made known uh, by, and been revealed by the Spirit to his apostles and prophets. So, so there's two really new things here. The first really new thing is that there was no longer to be any Jew and Gentile distinction. That's new. That's new information. And number two, that they would become one body, that they would be one humanity in the church through baptism and the ministry of the Holy Spirit. Now, I'm not sure anybody could have really figured that out through the Old Testament. This was new information, and so it's coming out in a more full way in the gospel. Now that this has been revealed, he says in verse 6, the Gentiles are fellow heirs. They're part of the same body. They're partakers of his promise through the gospel. And so what has been revealed, to put a fine point on it, is the gospel. The gospel is the announcement of the mystery. And he, con he continues in verse 8. He says, to me, who am less than the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. Paul's name in Latin, Paulus, means, means little or small. And some think that that was his Latin name because he was a short man. He, he might not have been tall. He might have been shorter than average. And so his name may be a, a play on his height, and now he may be playing on his name when he says to me, who am less than the least of all the saints, I am the, I am the shortest, I am the smallest, I am the least, I am the littlest. And, and you see, always in, in Paul's writing, there's nothing arrogant or boastful about him. I'm less than the least of all saints. There's no, there's no self-promotion 
He's, he's always exercising great humility. There's self-deprecation in his writing. Uh, is, that the way, is that the way you typically look around the room? Do you say, wow, I'm, I'm less than the least of all these saints. You know, I'm not, you know, I don't have the gifts that she has. And boy, I don't, you know, I don't have the, uh, I, I, don't, I don't have those, those uh, you know, capabilities that he has. I, I really, you know, I'm, I'm really among giants. Do, do you think that way? Or do you think, you know, really what? I'm worthy of the highest honor around here. I'm the best of all these poor schmucks. You know, I, at least in this room, I'm the greatest of all the saints. You see, Paul doesn't think that way. He, he was indeed a giant. Paul was a giant, but he doesn't put himself forward as one. He says to me, the least of all the saints, this grace was given that I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ. This word unsearchable is so fascinating, but it's, it's a hard one to translate. That word means literally impossible to trace out with your footsteps, unsearchable, impossible to trace out with your footsteps. It's something that you can't walk around. Let's say that you're hiking through the woods and you come to a nice little body of water and you say, oh, what a nice little pond. There's geese and there's frogs and there's turtles. And you say, I would like to walk around this pond. It's a beautiful day. I want to just walk all the way around the pond. And you start walking around it and you say, it's, I'm not, I'm not finding the other side. I'm not finding the other shore here. Where, and you say, wait, this is not a pond. This is like a lake. Where is this going? And you keep walking, you keep walking. You say, this ain't even a lake. This, is this some kind of inland sea? I'm, I'm seeing ships. I'm seeing a beach. I'm seeing crabs and seagulls. And then, and then you keep walking. You find out this, this is a bay. This is an inlet of an ocean. And I can't, you can never walk around an ocean. Can you walk around the Atlantic Ocean? Can you walk around the Pacific Ocean? You can't. You walk and walk and walk, and you'll never walk around the whole thing. Uh, that's, that's what that word, that's, that's the connotation there. It's impossible to trace out with your footsteps. It's impossible to walk around the riches of Christ. Remember that Paul said earlier, he said, you formerly walked according to the pattern of the world. But now you have a new pattern to walk around. And this new pattern, you can go on exploring and exploring and the walk will never end because there is always something new to see and something new to understand and explore. This is how he describes the riches of Christ, which don't forget, have paid off our debt. Our debt has been paid off with unbelievable wealth. So Paul preaches two things among the Gentiles. He preaches, he says in verse 8, the unsearchable riches of Christ and verse 9, and I should preach among the Gentiles the unsearchable riches of Christ and to make all see what is the fellowship of the mystery, which was... Uh, which from the beginning of the ages has been hidden in God who created all things through Jesus Christ. What is, what is the fellowship of the mystery? Who is the fellowship of the mystery? Well, the church is the fellowship of the mystery. And so Paul brings a two-pronged message. He talks about the riches of Christ and the fellowship of the mystery of the gospel, this, this community of the people reconciled to God and to each other. The church is the public demonstration of the power of the gospel. The church is the display of God's grace and wisdom. Church and Christ go hand in hand. You can't preach one without the other. They, they must go together, head and body, bride and groom. They, they always go together. And so Paul says, I preach both of them. But we have a 
we have a vacuum in the, in the, the, the presentation of the gospel, in our common discourse, in our conversation about the gospel, you can hear about Jesus, and I hope we hear about Jesus, but, but where is the church? Where is the, the proclamation that in order to be in fellowship and in, and in right communion with God through his son Jesus, you must be in communion with his people. You have to be in and with and faithful to his church. Where, where is that? And so we have a vacuum of that preaching of the church, and that vacuum gets filled with all other manner of, of things. We have not Jesus and the church, but, but Jesus and self-righteous moralism. That's, that's a good one. Those go together. Or, or Jesus and good family values. Or Jesus and American politics and culture wars. Or, or Jesus and anything else. Fill in the blank. But the church herself, she is the new family. She is the new city. She's the new polis, the, the, the center of power. And everything else that we might put in there, in that vacuum, Everything else is a rival of the church and ends up leading to a false gospel. That's why you and I, people of God, brothers and sisters, we've got to have a strong ecclesiology. And it's why you hear me over and over and over stressing the vital importance of the church and your allegiance to the church. It's because Paul preaches this message, Jesus and his body, they go together. You can't preach one without the other. Verse 10. He says, to the intent that now the manifold wisdom of God might be made known by the church to the principalities and powers in the heavenly places, according to the eternal purpose which he accomplished in Christ Jesus our Lord, in whom we have boldness and access with confidence through faith in him. Therefore, I ask that you do not lose heart at my tribulations for you, which is your glory. These mysteries, he says, have been made known by the church to the principalities and powers, those who rule over the earth, the rulers of the world. And this revelation to powers comes somehow through Paul's tribulations. That's, he ties these things together here. And we're going to come back to this. We're going to put a sticky note right there. And we're going to come back to this at the very end, how, how this mystery is is revealed to principalities and powers through his suffering. But let's first finish the sentence we started back in verse 1. So he says, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner of Christ Jesus for you Gentiles. That's in verse 1. And he, he breaks off and he, he explains the mystery. And then he says in verse 14, for this reason, I bow my knees to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ, from whom the whole family in heaven and earth is named, that he would grant you, according to the riches of his glory, to be strengthened with might through his spirit in the inner man, that Christ may dwell in your hearts through faith, that you, being rooted and grounded in love, may be able to comprehend with all the saints what is the width and length and depth and height to know the love of Christ, which passes knowledge that you may be filled with the fullness of God. Now to him who is able to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Christ Jesus to all generations forever and ever. Amen. Now remember how in the first chapter we focused on how often Paul talks about us being in Christ. Everything is in Christ, that life and salvation are in Christ. This is an emphasis, again, that's lost in most present-day presentations of the gospel because it's thought of, to be about a very individual thing, about getting Jesus in you, when Paul talks way more about being in Christ than about 
Christ being in you. But here he says, oh yes, the spirit strengthens your inner man, certainly, and Christ dwells in your hearts by faith. That is absolutely true. There's the same kind of mutual indwelling between us and the Lord Jesus that we see in uh, the way Jesus talks about the Trinity in John 17. Remember how we read uh, almost every Trinity Sunday, the Father is in the Son, the Son is in the Father, the Spirit is in the Father and the Son. We, you and I get wrapped up in that. And so we are in Jesus and he is in us. We partake in his life and he lives through us. We are his and he is ours. So, so there's this similar kind of indwelling, this mutual indwelling. We partake of his life. And this mutual indwelling brings a nourished rootedness and groundedness in love. A comprehension, by the way, which he says, with all the saints. It's never a purely individual thing, but a comprehension with all the saints. What is the width and length and height of the love of Christ? The knowledge of God, of, of uh, the 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 pursuit of getting your arms around even one of the manifold manifestations of the glories of God is a lifelong and even an eternal process. There is no end to to the work of comprehending the brilliance of God. The more you learn, the more you find out there is to learn. We never get to a point where we stop asking questions, where we, where we have it all figured out, where we stop learning. We may only press deeper and deeper and deeper into the revelation of the mysteries. We are people of God. We are perpetual students. We are always learning. You have never arrived. You have never got it all figured out. You have never been uh, perfected completely in every aspect. Uh, I remember the first time I drove to Colorado, as if you've ever dri driven through the West, the first time you see the mountains, like the first two hours you're in Colorado, it still feels like Kansas, right? For those of you who've been, you know, it's just flat. And, and then eventually you see mountains on the horizon. You say, oh, finally, we're in, we're in Colorado. We're, we're going to be in the mountains soon. But you keep driving and driving and driving and driving, and the mountains don't, they don't get any bigger. They, they've just barely, barely, the, the perception, uh, the perspective doesn't change for, for a long time. And eventually, after many hours, you, you, finally, you finally get there to the mountains. Well, this is something like that. You're driving, you're driving, you're driving, and you get, you get just a little bit better perspective, but you never, you never actually get uh, all the way. You haven't, you haven't fully achieved complete and total uh, uh, comprehension of all that God is and does. And so he closes this part with a blessing. He, he ascribes glory to Christ. And let me, let me just read that one more time. Now to him who is able to, ex to do exceedingly abundantly above all that we ask or think, according to the power that works in us, to him be glory in the church by Jesus Christ to all generations forever and ever. How does, how does he describe this God, this object of his praise? Let's, let's break it up into bite-sized pieces. He is able to do. God is not inactive. He's not absent. He's not passive. He's not dead. He is the God who continually works through his creation. He is able to do what we ask. So he answers the prayers of his people. He is able to do what we ask or think. He, he knows our thoughts. He knows the innermost desires of our hearts because he reads our thoughts. He is able to do all we ask 
or think. There's nothing too great or too small for him. He has all the power and all the resources of the cosmos. But wait, he is able to do above all that we ask or think. His plans to prosper his church, his plans to glorify his name, exceed our plans to do those things. He is able to do abundantly above all that we ask or think. He is a God of abundance. He goes far beyond our requests and gives us not only the thing that we prayed for, but even better beyond that. No, 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 wait, there's another word. He does exceedingly abundantly above all we ask or think. Super abundance, vastly more than more. This power of God to work beyond our prayers, to work beyond our thoughts and our dreams is the power that works in us, namely the Holy Spirit. It should be capital P here. He is the power of the resurrection, the power that raised Jesus from the dead. And to him and for his superabundant love for his people, Paul says, be glory. Where? Where is this glory? Where does the glory rest? Where does the glory of Jesus uh, find, find its uh, footing? Where can you find the glory of Jesus? In the church. Where does the glory of this God and of his Christ remain? In the church. The glory is in the body and the head, the bride and her groom. To all generations, forever and ever, he says. The glory of Christ in the church never ceases. It only increases eternally. The church will never be put aside. Now, the temple has been set aside. It was only a shadow. The the nation of Israel has been folded into the church and Jew and Gentile have been brought together. That ended. There are things that have ended, but here's something that's not going to end. He says, forever and ever, the glory of Christ is found in the church. She is the big, exciting, wonderful mystery that was hidden in God and that has now been revealed. So in the middle of this letter, before he moves on to practical application, now that he wraps up this this opening section of, of theological information, at this point, Paul spills out this doxology, this overflow of praise for who Jesus is, for what Jesus has accomplished for us. And Paul rejoices that he gets to be the chosen messenger to the Gentiles. This mystery has been revealed to him, and now he gets to proclaim it to principalities and authorities. Isn't it kind of exciting to be the one who has some little bit of news that nobody knows yet? To be the one to get to tell other people about some great thing in our family when one or two of us know something that the others haven't found out yet, especially if it's something brand new, we, uh, we tease and we, we fight a little bit. We say, let me tell it. No, 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 let me tell it. You can't tell as good as I can tell it. Let me tell it. And we, uh, we, we're so excited to be able to share good news. We want to share a great story with others. What, what makes it especially exciting is if it's so good, but it's so new that, that you're the one to bring this news to others for the first time. This is the kind of joy that Paul is experiencing, that he gets to share this revelation with the rulers of the world and bring them into this mystery. But how does all this start out? How did chapter three begin? For this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner. I am Paul, the prisoner. The fact that Paul is a prisoner is not a footnote to this text. It's not, it's not an addendum. The fact that he's a prisoner is wrapped all around this. It's, it's the data that holds all this together. I, Paul, the prisoner, for this reason, I, Paul, the prisoner, for you Gentiles, and then all the way over in verse 14, he finishes, for this reason, I bow my knees 
to the Father of our Lord Jesus Christ. It's only because he was a prisoner, because he is falsely accused, because he was sticking his neck out for the Gentiles, it's only because of this that he's in Rome awaiting an audience with Caesar. And along the way to Rome, he's met with the Jewish authorities, the Sanhedrin. He's met with Felix, the Roman governor of Judea. He had to hang out there for a while and he met Felix's successor Festus as well. He spent time with Herod Agrippa. How does Paul get on the schedule of all of these incredibly famous and powerful men? How does he get their full attention? How does he get an audience with them? Well, he gets there, uh, he gets their attention because he's in chains. He does it as a prisoner. Who else in the Bible, what other faithful servants of God get to speak directly to kings and rulers of the world? Well, I'm sure you could think of Joseph. Joseph has the full attention of Pharaoh, but how does Joseph get there? How does Joseph get the full attention of Pharaoh? Well, you know, he went to the right college and made all the right connections. That's how he gets there, right? No. How does he get there? Through false accusation and imprisonment. That's how Daniel gets in front of Nebuchadnezzar. Nebuchadnezzar is the ruler of the world and Daniel is his counselor. But how does Daniel get there? Through captivity and he falls victim to the hateful conspiracy of others and he spends time in the lion's den. Jesus himself stands before the Jewish court, before Pilate and Herod, before the rulers of his day. But even as Jesus stands before them, he stands there in chains. Now Paul, as he gets his chance to speak to principalities and powers, he does so under arrest. Paul does so just like Jesus did. Influence then comes by way of the cross. Influence comes through chains and imprisonment. One phrase that you might hear a lot, and it's getting kind of tread-worn now, I kind of groan every time I hear this phrase now, but I'm going to use it anyway, but, but I'm going to explain it. A phrase that, that I hear over and over from social activists is, we, we are speaking truth to power. Have you, have you heard that phrase before? It was actually coined by a Quaker several years ago. Um, you know, Quakers are not Christian. You know, they may have good oatmeal, but they're not Christians. Don't think, oh, Quaker, that sounds wholesome. It's not. You know, they're not, they're not Christians. They're not Orthodox at all. Uh, but, but that phrase was coined by a Quaker. And it, this, this idea of speaking truth to power, it, it comes with the assumption that all power is corrupt, right? All hierarchical structures must be corrupt. That's what Lord Acton said, isn't it? You know, uh, uh, power corrupts and absolute power corrupts absolutely, right? I mean, that's just, that might as well be a proverb of our modern world. Well, well it's built on that, on that faulty footing that all power must therefore be corrupt. And, and it's, it's up to us to bring those in power down a notch by telling them the unvarnished truth. We've got to tell it bravely and boldly and, and loudly. But what gets sold as truth, typically in the modern discourse, what gets sold as truth and the truth that is spoken to, spoken to power uh, is you know, just inconsistent Marxist radical nonsense, right? You know, somehow, somehow high schoolers are constitutional experts now, I guess, and people who've never worked 40 hours in a week are gonna school all of us on economics? You know, somehow, how does this, I don't know how this is supposed to work. Uh, but that is, that is speaking truth to power, right? How, however, the church really does have the truth 
And in fact, we are called upon. It is our duty to speak it to the rulers of the age. So in a very real sense, if anybody has the commission to speak truth to power, it is the church. But we don't do it like the revolutionaries. That's of no effect. Neither do we do it the way of the world, by selling out to a worldly definition of success. You may think, I've got a plan to be really influential It's this way, you know, you just become super wealthy and powerful and connected, and then you'll have a stage from which to to change something. But but there's something about there's something about pining after worldly glory that causes you to lose your soul in the process. How many faithful Christians are really able to hold it together and not become completely compromised along the way? Now Now, perhaps God will grant some of us wealth and opportunity and we'll pray and I'll pray right with you that you'll be faithful with that opportunity. But but what do we see in the scriptures? Typically, ordinarily, how does God reveal himself to the nations? Does he show himself to the world through worldly glory? Does he show himself to the world through a worldly definition of success? Or does God do it through the tribulation of his people? So, so I think you know the answer to the question. Ordinarily, as if Joseph and Daniel and Jesus and Paul are examples among others, if we really have an interest in speaking real truth to the powers of our day, if we want an audience with the rulers of the world in order to change the world, and I believe we do want to change the world, if we want to further the kingdom's work, we're probably going to have to do it in chains. That's just, that's the way it works. It's probably going to come about by people taking advantage of us, by making false allegations against us, like they did of Jesus, like they did of Paul, and like they did of Daniel and Joseph, through, through our enduring shame and ridicule and by putting up with a lot of stuff that's not fair. That's, that's how God works. Now, don't misunderstand me. Work hard, young people, absolutely. Work hard. Take hold of every opportunity God gives you to the glory of God in the name of Jesus. Do your absolute best and flourish wherever God has planted you. But when it comes time to give any of it up for the name of Jesus, will you be ready to do that? Will you be ready to let go? When you see something that looks like a cross, are you going to run the other way? If you, if you see something that looks like persecution or affliction, don't be scared. Don't, don't follow the impulse to run away from it, to shrink back. Don't hide under a rock. Embrace it. Bring it on. Say, oh, this is my chance. This is how it works. And I'm not going to trade Jesus for respectability. I'm not going to deny Jesus so that I can just fly under the radar and not get in trouble. See, this is how real truth is spoken to power. This is how God changes the world through his church. And it always looks like a cross. It always comes with chains. It always comes through embarrassment. It always comes through shame. This is the the way. This is the way. There is no other way. Let's pray. Father, we pray that you would give us boldness and courage in the day that you call upon us to not compromise, to to stand boldly for you, that that we would do so, that we would be willing to lay aside whatever personal reputation or personal comfort that you call us to sacrifice in order to proclaim uh, the, the mystery of the gospel to the rulers and the powers of our age. Father, you've worked this way through history. I know that uh, you will work this way again. 
that it's only through death and resurrection that there's any kind of glory. It's only by way of, of the cross that there's, there's any, that the, that the gospel goes out and, and it goes out effectively. So Father, in, in that day, prepare us for it now by giving us courage and spiritual strength. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.